When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week, we bring you a bit of a holiday-themed episode. Christmas is just around the corner, so we thought it might be fun to cover one of Christie's lesser-known short stories that perhaps has a bit of a holiday theme that's arguable. We may be stretching slash shoehorning things a little bit, but uh, what are we covering, Catherine? We are covering The Call of Wings. Mm. I know, it sounds intriguing, doesn't it, Kemper? Certainly not a Christmas title that is discussed all that often, but discuss it we shall. Could you tell me a little bit about the publication history on this one? So like a number of the stories in The Hound of Death, there is not a very clear publication history of this particular story prior to its inclusion in that book. And, you know, as a reminder to listeners, although you've certainly heard us say this before, that book was first published by Autumn's Press in the UK in October 1933 as part of this like coupon giveaway as part of a magazine relaunch. And then it was published by Collins Crime in February of 1936 as a regular bookstore book. This particular story does not seem to show up in the U.S. until the 1971 publication of The Golden Ball and Other Stories. Yes, very intriguing. This is definitely an outlier of a story. And Catherine, Christmas has come a couple of days early for me because this affords me the opportunity to quote from Agatha Christie's autobiography. Oh, yes. Always a delight, Kemper. Always a delight. She does not, as we've mentioned before, talk all that much about her writing in her autobiography, but I am pleased to say that she mentions The Call of Wings and she gives it a two-word review. That's right. She has two words for The Call of Wings in her autobiography, and they are, and I quote, not bad. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's one way to look at it. One way to look at it. So I'm sure she would be pleased by uh, how much time we're about to give it, because it's certainly going to be a lot more than two words. But it's actually really interesting. This is one of the very first stories that Christie wrote. And I think that's why the publication provenance on it is a bit sketchy, because I, I'm not certain about this. But if I had to make an educated guess, I would say that it wasn't published until it was collected within The Hound of Death, and that this was one of the very, very early stories, as early as 1911, at least from when Christie is talking about writing it in her autobiography, um, one of the very earliest stories that she wrote. We know that her first, very first short story was The House of Beauty, and she wrote it while she was recovering from the flu. (laughs) And her mother suggested, why don't you try your hand at writing a story since she was bored of all of the card games that she was playing on her own in bed, and she did. 
And then that's when she writes in her autobiography. After that, I wrote other stories. The Call of Wings, not bad. The Lonely God, results of reading The City of Beautiful Nonsense, regrettably sentimental. A short dialogue between a deaf lady and a nervous man at a party. And a grisly story about a seance, which I rewrote many years later. We have already covered that story, of course, which is the last seance also within the Hound of Death collection. So I think it's interesting to think of this as a story that has a writing date of perhaps 1911, 1912 or thereabouts, which is certainly uh, predating quite literally everything we talk about on this podcast. And I think that we can talk about later after we cover what this story is actually about, the very, very clear influences it has, right? Yes. And she, I mean, and that's what she talks about. This is what she says about the House of Beauty. Amateurishly written, of course, and showing the influence of all that I had read the week before. This is something you can hardly avoid when you first begin to write. And then she goes on to talk about having read a lot of D.H. Lawrence before The House of Beauty, et cetera, et cetera. She doesn't talk specifically about what she had read before The Call of Wings. But yes, we can. I think we can see the influences. And we talked a little bit in a previous episode about, you know, the Sherlock Holmes influence and styles and some of those earlier novels and how she kind of subsumed that fan fiction-y kind of interest that she had in Holmes as she really found her footing. But I think, yes, we can see those influences a bit more starkly in the story than we tend to do in her more mature (laughs) writings. Right. And we might as well get it off the bat that we're calling this a Christmas episode largely because of that influence, which is going to make itself incredibly clear. Yes. We just may be reading a 20th century Christmas carol here. Uh, Yeah, slightly more macabre. One, but yeah. True, true. All right. So I think for this reason, we can very quickly dispense with our usual categories here, given that this is a supernatural Christmas-ish or Christmas-adjacent story. We have no traditional victim. We have no traditional suspects. It doesn't even really make sense to break this down into the world as it appears to be and as it actually is, does it, Catherine? Well, I think what I said to you, Kemper, was that it's the world as it appears to be and apparently actually is. (laughs) They seem to be one in the same. (laughs) Unlike in a traditional puzzle mystery, there is not a clear demarcation between fantasy and reality let's just say, in this story, that might actually be the whole point, that things be weird in The Call of Wings, and that never gets quote-unquote solved. So, yeah, we're just in different territory here. This is something else entirely. It is. Well, on that note, I suppose we should uh, start with what the plot is and where the story starts, and we start with two men leaving a fancy dinner party held by a famous nervous specialist, Bernard Selden. And those two men leaving are Mr. Silas Hammer, a millionaire who has pulled himself up to the ranks of millionaires from being a poor little newspaper boy. And he has a friend, the parson Dick Barrow, who ministers to the poor of London's East End. And they're both happy men, Hammer because of his wealth, Borrow because of his belief in a greater vision, capital letter V. And Hammer tells him that he doesn't believe in vision as he doesn't believe in anything he can't touch, hear, or see. And so, you know, they pleasantly part ways. There's no animosity there. They're just having a nice chat on their way home, and there's not an argument going on there. No, they're sort of just staking out their philosophical grounds and never shall the twain meet, right? Like, Hammer is just a stark materialist, and Parson Borrow is a spiritualist. 
Right. They're both from the same side of the tracks. That's how they are friends with each other. And they just both find it funny that they're both the only people that seemed happy at this dinner party, but for literally the opposite reason. Right. So as our materialistic Mr. Hammer walks leisurely home, he sees a homeless man drunkenly stumble in front of a bus. And this poor man is then run over and killed by that bus. And Hammer is reassured that he really couldn't have done anything. And it doesn't seem like he could have. This is not a case where we as the reader suspect that he's just lying to himself and he actually could have done something. It seems to just be a truly unfortunate sequence of events that he witnessed. But... Hammer is worried or just bothered by the fact that it never even occurred to him to do something to help the man in any any way. The whole event just bothers him and leaves him with a bad taste in his mouth, shall we say. Right. So he continues his walk home, now perturbed. And he hears an eerie music. At first he thinks it's a flute, but then he realizes that it's something that's not quite a flute and it's playing a variation on a single phrase in different keys and in different harmonies, etc. But essentially the same phrase is being played over and over. And it's played by a man playing something like a pipe flute and the man has no legs. And all of a sudden, Hammer feels as if the ground is falling out from under him, and he grabs onto the side of a stone buttress on the side of a building for gravity. The man has some crutches that he gets up on. Where do we know those crutches from, Mm, Kemper? Yes, shades of Tiny Tim, perhaps. Shades of. But so Hammer is feeling ridiculous when the music stops. So he continues walking, but he suddenly decides to turn to follow this cripple on his crutches. And when he catches up with him, he meets this beautiful young man, except he realizes the man probably isn't young, but still he looks young and he looks like he is so joyful and at peace. And he asks the man about himself and about the song. And the man tells him that the music is very, very old, centuries old. And the man tells him that he is not English. He is from far away. And um, when Hammer asks the man, you know, why he has no legs, assuming that there is like some terrible illness or accident, particularly probably because he just witnessed a man get run over by a bus. So I have to imagine this was, you know, heavily on his mind. Mm -hmm. The man uh, replies that his legs were quote unquote evil. That's not weird. (laughs) Not weird at all. So Silas Hammer goes home and drifts off to sleep, but he seems to hear that same odd music and he feels as if he's floating higher and higher until then he gets ripped down and forced back onto the bed, sort of pressed into it, almost like it's a punishment. If this is seeming weird, it is, and it reads super weird too, but it reads intriguingly, I think. Yeah. I was intrigued. I mean, this whole story has the lightness of prose that... Christie would become very well known for, but it's dealing with a a very sort of odd set of events. I was intrigued by now. So he continues to feel this music that's lifting him up and then getting ripped back down and, and, and forced to the ground over and over. This doesn't go away. And, you know, a large part of that conversation that Silas Hammer and his friend Parson Barrow were having in the beginning of the story is that they're both actually quite happy. And the Parson even jokes that Silas is the only contented millionaire who he knows. But now he is the opposite of contented because he's essentially getting tormented over and over. Right. Every time he sleeps, he has this recurring nightmare that is ruining his life. So he's haunted enough by it finally 
finally, to visit Bernard Selden, who was that nerve specialist who was having the dinner party at the beginning of the story, to ask Mr. Selden what he should do. It's become so bad, and he's felt so boxed in by walls and ceilings that he's actually taken to sleeping on his roof. But even that isn't good enough because it feels as if the city is still boxing him in. He just feels this weight that's pressing down on him. And every time he's forced back from this floating kind of trip that he takes in his dreams, he's in more and more physical and spiritual pain, just every sort of pain that one can imagine. And Bernard Selden is like, yikes. <laughs> right, right. Although, you know, I have to say, to Bernard Selden's credit, he actually does not treat Silas as though he's crazy. He comes up with a number of possible suggestions. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I mean, he could have been like, bite down on this piece of wood and let me give you some electroshock therapy at this point. But right, <laughs> he does not right. do that. Just shipped off to the loony bin. But no, he doesn't do that at all. And in fact, after he suggests practical points, right, like, I don't know, go to the country for a little while. Right. Take a break. Yeah. He does say, you know, there may be other things that, you know, I don't really want to suggest them, but, you know, there are maybe other possibilities here. Such as finding that street musician who seems to be the root of all these problems. Selden suggests that perhaps... Hammer was hypnotized by him. Like maybe this street musician did something weird to him and he's feeling the effects of this. I think this is where, not that you can't have hypnosis in a story later in the 20th century, but in 1911, 1912, I think people probably believed a lot more in the power of hypnosis, perhaps. It's like not crazy that he would think that Hammer could have actually been hypnotized to the point where he was being tormented in this way. But Silas says that he's just too afraid to find the street musician. This whole thing is just too horrifying, and he he doesn't know if he can face that horrible man again. But, unfortunately for him, he ends up coming across the street musician on another street in a bit of golden light, looking beautiful, as always, drawing chalk art on the street. Beautiful, beautiful chalk art. Um, idyllic forest scenes, etc. Like, exquisite chalk paintings just on the sidewalk. And Hammer, of course, now, again, is like, well, is he a street musician? Is he a vagrant? Is he like an artist? Who is he? And the man just responds by drawing another beautiful chalk scene, but this time with a man on a rock playing a pan flute who has goat legs. And then he brushes his hands across the chalk painting and the legs disappear. And again, the men tells Hammer that the legs are evil. We'll talk a little bit about the mythological implications of that, perhaps when we're done. So Hammer, feeling increasingly desperate to do something, wanders to a park where he notes the derelicts lying around in the shade of trees, lounging. And while he's disgusted, while the materialist capitalist in him, you know, thinks, why can't they just get to work and pull themselves up by their bootstraps like I did? He also can't stop looking at them and thinking of his own predicament. And I mean, we should also pull out just because I think it's worth reading some of what Silas tells Selden when he's talking about his delusion, because it's not just this sort of the feeling of lightness and airiness, but he has an actual vision as he's sort of ascending the heavens of wings, right? And this is, of course, our titular role of wings. This is what he says to Selden. I saw them, the wings. Oh, Selden, the wings. And then Selden asks, but what were they? Men? Angels? Birds? And he replies, I don't know. I couldn't see. Not yet. But the color of them, wing color, 
We haven't got it here. It's a wonderful color. Wing color, repeated Selden. What's it like? Hammer flung up his hands impatiently. How can I tell you? Explain the color blue to a blind person. It's a color you've never seen. Wing color. Hammer is just frustrated because he can't really convey what he's seeing and hearing and experiencing. And she does a good job, I think, of conveying that to the reader. Like, I kind of know what he's talking about, but I don't really know what he's talking about. And it keeps, I think, the story from feeling too familiar and, quite honestly, cheesy. Because it is weird. It's not as if he's just seeing an angel in the sky. It's just a lot weirder and more visceral than that, which is part of why he's being so tormented by it. So it's just interestingly drawn within the story. This is one of those cases when we come across this a fair amount in Christie, where trying to talk about the story reduces it to something that feels a lot more familiar and perhaps cheesy than it actually is when you read it. I just no, want to I put mean, that it, out there. Right. I think that it's worth reading just for its oddity. But this continues for a little while. I mean, the story's not that long, but it does go on about his predicament for some time, right? And so he's sort of disgusted by the vagrants that he keeps seeing. And like he keeps increasingly noticing the vagrants too. That's an interesting element of this, right? Mm -hmm. And he finally realizes essentially what he thinks he needs to do. And he shows up eventually at the residence of Parson Burrow, who is surprised to see him. He's not seen him, in fact, since that fateful dinner party. And he tells the man that he finally understands what the person meant by vision and that he, Silas Hammer, has seen it. And he finally, finally, after all these months, uh, he knows what to do. He knows why this music has lifted him and why he has felt so bound and constrained and pulled down and blocked in. And it was wealth. He is pinned down by his wealth. The sort of material world is caging him in. Yes. As it were. Yes. It's perhaps a similar lesson to one learned by uh, a man by the name of Ebenezer Scrooge, but it goes in a different direction. Have no fear. <laughs> there are surprises I, in store. It definitely does. <laughs> it's if the goat legs weren't already enough. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Silas Hammer has already talked to his lawyers, and all of his wealth, except for his last tuppence, are going into, of course, the Parsons' hands to help the poor of the East End. Not because he thinks they deserve it. Frankly, he still thinks that they can all work harder. <laughs> like, yeah, he says, he literally says all they need is a little more grit. Yeah. He's a little bit like, give them food, but make sure that they're not jumbo-sized sodas from 7-Eleven because the pores aren't allowed that. <laughs> a little a little bit of a uh, an early 20th century Michael Bloomberg, if you will. <laughs> oh, boy. Poss- possibly so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's giving all of his money to the parson to help these poor people. Again, not even really to help them, but to help himself <laughs> because mm-hmm. he needs to be free of his wealth. He needs to be free of the wealth that is weighing him down. He needs to heed the call of Mm -hmm. this vision that has been relentless and won't stop visiting him. He at least trusts the parson that he's going to use it as best he can. Although ideally to, quote unquote, feed them physically, not spiritually. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, uh, you know, he's not necessarily the warmest and fuzziest. Yeah, here's what he says. The vision has got a hold of him, and he's going to hand over all his money. It's splendid, Borrow leaned forward, his eyes gleaming. There's nothing particularly splendid about it, said Hammer grimly. I don't care a button about poverty in the East End. All they want is grit. 
I was poor enough and I got out of it, but I've got to get rid of the money and these tomfool societies shan't get hold of it. You're a man I can trust. Feed bodies or souls with it, preferably the former. I've been hungry, but you can do as you like. He, he hasn't exactly made a transformation in terms of his principles, and one could argue in that he's doing this out of a self-interested motive, right? He's doing this because he feels bad, he feels pain, and he wants to relieve himself of that pain. So that's why he's giving his money away. It has nothing to do with helping society. Right. Although, I mean, I don't know that Scrooge necessarily, like he was just doing it for Tiny Tim, you know? (laughs) Well, I think that the story actually comments upon whether or not intent is even important based upon where we go next. So what is the final step on this odd little journey Chrissy has taken us on? Well, so he leaves the parson and he realizes that he had forgotten to eat lunch before fundamentally giving all of his money away. So he he sees his last, you know, tuppence in his pocket and he decides that... Uh, you know, he remembers the vagrants sleeping in the shade in the park that he had noticed earlier. And he thinks that, you know what he's going to do? He's going to take the dreaded underground and go to the park because he always has had a driver. He notes it earlier because the person has to take the underground and, you know, he hates it. It's like going into the bowels of the earth. But that's what he's going to do with his last bit of money. So he's waiting for the train. And another drunken vagrant stumbles onto the tracks in front of him. And Hammer flashes back to the earlier drunken vagrant getting run over by the bus. And he thinks about it and he thinks about it and he can't get that former image out of his head. So he leaps onto the tracks. He drags up the drunk man. He throws him onto the platform. And then Silas Hammer is run over by the train to his death and as he is being run over by the underground he finally sees what he has earlier called the call of wings those beautiful wings that are not describable and he hears that pan music playing the end fa la 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 yeah merry christmas everyone it isn't exactly ebenezer scrooge running through the streets of london saying merry christmas to all and buying the roast goose for tiny tim and eating with his family and whatnot but yeah i wonder if christy had read a Christmas Carol in the week before she wrote this story. It's quite possible because it does seem like it's dealing with similar themes. I mean, this is almost a more honest look at the self-immolation of... Of a capitalist? Yeah, of a capitalist. I mean, and of what I suppose might have to happen for one to truly change their ways and what does happen when one truly changes one's ways. He is destroyed. I suppose the Pollyanna gloss on the story is, yes, but now he's happy and he's in a happy happier place. And it's like, yes, but he's dead. And also what's going on with the legless pan here? Could you shed any light on that, Catherine? Yeah. Again, we are speculating. Let's be very clear. We don't actually, I think, have direct information that we're working off of here. But Pan is a Greek god, right? Who is sort of a god of the forest, right? And sex, and merriment, not of excess, but joyful, woodsy, earthy, sexy, musicy, whatever, paganism, sort of. And he has sort of the distinction of being one of the only Greek gods who you could potentially point to as having died, like died a mortal death, although that is really up for debate. It's unclear that that is actually something that 
happens in mythology. But the idea that Pan is dead is a thing that runs through a lot of literature. And it's a thing that got especially picked up by the Romantic era, namely in England. And it was used for various purposes by the Romantics. You know, that idea of nature versus the abyss. But also it gets brought in by some Christian theologian types, famously Chesterton, who created Father Brown. The idea a little bit being that that sort of destruction of the epitome of paganism allows for the embrace of essentially Christ. So by cutting off the legs of the goat, you can allow an entry point into the kingdom of heaven as understood by Christian theology. That's the thing. The pan in this story is not just pan. It's a legless pan. <laughs> right. It's, cut, it's, pan, it's pan missing the goat parts and also being an urban pan, right? Yes. A, a street beggar on a city sidewalk and only drawing the sort of idyllic forest, not being part of it. Right. And there's the whole connection between the cloven goat hoofs and the devil. So this idea that the goat half is evil and then he's freed himself from that evil part of him is, I think, why we get at the end of the story Pan as part of the vision, right? Which would go in the opposite direction to the sort of traditional Christian myth-making that you're talking about. But again, this is a very special version of Pan who's appearing in the story, which is part of why it's so weird and interesting. Because in this last paragraph, I think it's fair to say there is a hopeful note on which the story ends. After Silas Hammer has put himself in the path of the train and saved this vagrant, Christie writes, then suddenly his fear died. The material world held him down no longer. He was free of his shackles. He fancied for a moment that he heard the joyous piping of Pan. Then, nearer and louder, swallowing up all else, came the glad rushing of innumerable wings, enveloping and encircling him. Again, though, I mean, he he is killed and he's no longer exists as the person he was. So this is still a far cry from A Christmas Carol Land and Ebenezer Scrooge having mended his ways and being a better version of himself. Silas Hammer had to die to redeem himself. Very Christian allegory that she's telling. So she's just kind of playing, I think, on a lot of these themes. And it's just... Well, although I will I will ask you, what mysterious Mr. Quinn story that might have had an Oscar Wilde shout out in it do we also perhaps think about with this? Perhaps the final story within the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection, Harlequin's Lane. Yeah. And I mean, because there is a little bit of the Oscar Wilde element happening here too, of sacrifice leading to something beyond the material world, right? Yeah. Christy definitely has that spiritual bent to her at times, sometimes even well, and puzzle spe- mysteries. Right. And I mean, it especially makes sense that this is very early and she's pulling from other reference that you might see that here. And, you know, I mean, arguably, even if Silas himself does not necessarily believe in helping the people of the East End, ultimately he is helping the people of the East End. His sacrifice does inherently make their lives better. Yeah, it's almost like he is tricked into being a good person. But he's still a good person at the end of the story. So that's the important Right. I mean, I suppose you could, if you really wanted to go dark on this story, you could um, ask yourself, does the parson Burrow have something to do with this? 
is he perhaps using mirrors and other trickery to pretend to be this legless pan? And then this, the true end of the story is just him diving into a pile of money. Scrooge, <laughs> Scrooge McDuck, more like it. Money is to be taken seriously. Didn't your Uncle Donald teach you anything? Oh. Yeah, it goes straight from Ebenezer Scrooge to Scrooge McDuck. Yeah, yeah. The circle is complete. It tickles me to read a Christie story in which a capitalist mends his ways, so to speak, and has more of a collectivist spirit. And the story itself, I think we could certainly say, has a collectivist spirit. When you contrast that with the Christie that most people know, especially given our most recent novel episode, They Came to Baghdad, <laughs> when she was seeming pretty establishment and conservative. This is a different, much younger Christie, a kinder gentler although, Christie, perhaps. Al- al- although... <laughs> I will point out to you that you know what Silas Hammer believes? He believes in screwing over all of the charitable societies. Yeah, it's true. He's giving it to a single individual because he hates all of the charitable societies. Right. He's giving so, it to someone he knows and who he who he believes in. You know? I mean, that seems fairly consistent to me. Yeah, no. And that's the great thing about Christy. She espouses different views and she obviously has characters who have lots of different thoughts. There's a smorgasbord of philosophical viewpoints in her novels and her stories. But that sense of individuality and self-determination, I think, is fairly consistent throughout her of and fair enough (laughs) that's although i do like that she was writing this story while being pampered in bed by her mother and some servants (laughs) (sighs) hey you know what if she really wrote this in 1911 or 1912 that means she was 21 or 22 i wish i could have written this when i was 21 or 22 so kudos Young Agatha. Yeah, fair, fair enough. And, you know, I mean, I think the story, despite its obvious riffs on A Christmas Carol in particular, it's interesting. You can extrapolate some things from it. And the weird mythology element is interesting. The sort of nods to the Romantic era are interesting in this. Yeah, we always appreciate taking a trip to the outer edges of the Christie verse, and this is certainly an outlier. So that is The Call of Wings, our holiday-themed Christie story. Join us next time for a novella. We don't get to cover these very often. A little bit of a hybrid between a short story and a novel, of course. That would be Murder in the Muse, a Poirot novella with a David Suchet adaptation, of course. So we are very excited to cover that one next time. And our next novel will be Mrs. McGinty's Dead. Also a Poirot. Lots of Poirot in our near future. You know you know that I get excited about that, so... I know you do. In the meantime, you can always join us over on our Patreon site. We are at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is allaboutagatha and our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And if you haven't already, please take a moment to rate and review us and help others find the podcast. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.